Welcome to Key 3 Educators, helping you excel as a Christian school leader, educator, or homeschooler as you outfit students to learn themselves, love God, and live connected. Here's your host, Stephanie Smith. Hello there. I'm Stephanie Smith, and I'm committed to helping you unlock leadership and teaching excellence in your school, classroom, or even at home as a home educator. I truly believe that Christian educators have the potential to cast a vision and prepare students for a life of earthly excellence and sacred significance. And I'm here to help you achieve just that. You've probably heard the expression, what's old is new again. Well, this seems to be true in the fashion world. Don't worry, we're not talking about fashion today. Definitely not talking about dress codes today. I guess we hear this in the fashion world because there are only so many ways you can design sleeves and collars and places you can put buttonholes. But today, I want to talk about an old story that reveals leadership lessons absolutely applicable to modern times. Before we jump in, I invite you to visit my website, key3educators.com, and check out speaking engagements I offer for your staff, students, and parents. No, I am not trying to be all things to all people as a speaker. As an experienced educator, parent, and with a passion for students, and a lot of experience working, especially with teens, there are messages designed for each group. So be creative. Maybe there's a parent presentation one evening, a student chapel the next morning, and a teacher workshop at lunch or after school. Check out key3educators.com slash speaking. First, a quick recap. Nehemiah was a Jewish official in the ancient kingdom of Persia. And as the cupbearer, he was the head honcho over the wine. He definitely wasn't a grunt worker. A cupbearer wasn't somebody who just sipped a little bit of the wine before it went to the cane, just in case somebody had decided to poison the cane. And then the innocent wine drinker would fall over dead and they'd say, oh, forget that wine. Let's go pull out another bottle. We don't know how many years it had taken for him to work his way up from the mailroom, but this was not a grunt level position. Well, he receives a report that the walls of Jerusalem are totally broken down which left Jerusalem without the crucial defenses of the day. Going back and rebuilding the walls wasn't a threat to the Persian king. As a matter of fact, it was in the king's best interest because invaders who would want to come in and attack Persian territory would be able to have overtaken Jerusalem very easily without having any defensive protection. So what Nehemiah was doing wasn't in opposition to something that was in the authority's best interest. It was actually aligned with the best interest of the king. And in the last episode, we looked at six leadership principles that we can learn and practice from Nehemiah's model as he goes back to rebuild these critical walls of this ancient city of his people that he loved. Today, we're going to pick up with number seven. We're going to talk about six more principles for leaders from this ancient, beautiful story. Number seven, 
He deals with escalating opposition. He's not disoriented or distracted by it. Now, when Nehemiah first went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, there were local officials in surrounding villages who were not happy about what he was doing. Now, make no mistake, they weren't threatened by what he was doing because it was going to imperil their survival. As a matter of fact, it really was in their best interest. However, what was threatening to them was they might have a loss of position and a loss of power. At first, their opposition is verbal, and it's along the lines of an old-school-type third-grade bully. However, it increases in its vehemence. They move from unhappiness to sarcasm, from anger and insults to plots and criminal accusations. As this happens, Nehemiah responds appropriately. He factors in possible harm posed to the mission and the team. He doesn't ignore, minimize, or exaggerate problems. He confronts obstacles without being consumed by them. He remains fixed on his commission, not winning over his enemies or arguing with them. This doesn't mean that he never engages with them in any way, shape, or form, but his engagement is incredibly limited. He doesn't buy into their manipulation and their fear-mongering and their scare tactics. He calls them out, he stays on mission, and he doesn't become consumed with trying to placate them or argue with them. Number eight. He equips his team for fast transitions. Jerusalem's walls had to be built with bricks. Now, there there were no three-day printers in that day. Just you could pull up and say, okay, here's our wall spec design, and then watch the concrete get poured out. Bricklayers carried both trowels and swords. Rubble removers carted buckets and bows. You see, as people were building, they didn't just have this big empty space to build on. Jerusalem's walls had been built before, and they had been totally demolished. And so people were having to both build and remove rubble. It was the modern-day equivalent of doing a house rehab and a remodel rather than a new build. So they were having to cart off all of this rubble while they were also rebuilding new walls. People were prepared to move from construction to combat in a moment's notice. Team members didn't stand around lamenting, I didn't sign up for this. You see, they are so unified in completing their mission, they accept building methods have changed and the old way of wall building is gone. Of course, this principle, like all leadership principles, has to remain in context of what's going on and with other leadership principles. This isn't an excuse to expect people to do anything and everything. But the fact is, people weren't going to be laying any bricks if the enemies came in and overtook them. If they wanted to accomplish their mission, 
they had to also be prepared for physical combat. They had to deal with some nasty realities in order to continue to be able to do their mission. Number nine, Nehemiah deals with in-house issues. One would hope a crisis would bring an alignment of priorities amongst a team. I mean, isn't that what's supposed to happen? Human deficiencies don't dissipate in difficult times. It's a little bit like in the New Testament when Jesus is getting ready to face his crucifixion and he has these profound, unimaginable stresses that he's dealing with. And where is his team? They're bickering over the most minute, unimportant things. Well, Nehemiah doesn't shame those with legitimate complaints or dismiss them with, look, people, I have got bigger problems right now. You guys are in here fighting over this. And excuse me, but have you noticed all the enemies that we have around us who really want to see us fail? He doesn't shame them into being quiet or going underground because he knows that damage can come from in-house unresolved issues, not just external adversaries. Let me say that again. He knows that damage can come from in-house unresolved issues, not just from external adversaries. When educators are burdened with the logistical, financial, relational, and psychological demands that they have, it can be easy to just want to roll their eyes at least inwardly, when someone complains about, oh, let's say the cost of curriculum or the dress code or a grading rubric. But if enough people are frustrated about those things, or even if there's a small group who is very vocal or influential, it will erode morale and can sabotage success of the more important mission. Number 10. Nehemiah delegates. He appoints reliable people to positions with the authority to carry out clear instructions. He doesn't just hand off some vague kind of last minute, hey, you need to just go take care of this. But he takes the time to select people who are qualified for their position. Then he gives them clear instructions. He's not micromanaging. He's giving them clarity so they can complete their calling. And he gives them authority along with it. There's no ambiguity about their role. Their roles are defined, they're limited, and achievable. They're responsible to implement policies which safeguard the city. See, Nehemiah is not threatened by others holding power. He sees this as a necessity, freeing his time and energy to complete his calling. Number 11, he implements plans for Jerusalem's long-term success, which are not dependent on his being governor. Does this remind you of anybody? Maybe something like George Washington, who many people wanted to proclaim as king and easily could have won another election. But he says, no, I'm not going to hold on to power. I'm going to step away from it. Nehemiah's vision is not for himself. 
His vision is for the success of Jerusalem, and he recognizes he's just one part of that success. He's intentional to embed values and systems that can be passed from generation to generation. He has enough flexibility that things can change, but he has enough constancy that there is a value system in place that will provide stability for the people and safety for the city. You see, he understands the end goal is not just to rebuild walls. It's the rebuilding of a people, a nation. The city is a means to an end. It's not the end. A strong Jerusalem, the historic political and spiritual capital of the Jewish nation, will inspire hope for a renewed people, not just a renewed place. Number 12, Nehemiah prays humbly, boldly, specifically. He laments, petitions, repents, reminds, worships, and praises. God is not an indifferent being to him. God is a mighty, holy, caring, dependable person with whom Nehemiah can and does converse. He knows the source of his desire to see Jerusalem rebuilt is God. His supplier is God. His shield is God. The deep spring watering his strength and strategies is not his position as royal cupbearer or even city governor. It isn't self-determination. It's not forceful personality. It's a vibrant relationship with God. Nehemiah armed his team with bricks and swords. Maybe you need books and hand sanitizer or video conferencing tools and online forums or professional development workshops. Whatever immediate project needs completing, copy Nehemiah's lesson book. Your team's accomplishments can be just as astounding as Nehemiah's. The same God of strategy and strength is still here, an ever-present help in time of trouble. I pray you found this two-part series on the leadership principles found in the book of Nehemiah beneficial. Your leadership, whether it's as an administrator over an entire school or a teacher in a classroom, is of eternal significance. That's not just some rah, 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 make him feel good mantra. That is truth. There are some exciting episodes coming up, including interviews, insights from books, which may not fall in the traditional education category, but contain great tools for effective teaching and leading. Oh, yes. And one day we're going to talk soon about the connection between chocolate, education, and I Love Lucy. So remember, I love coming and speaking with your students, staff, and parents in person, or even conducting limited virtual events. Check out 3keyeducators.com speaking for information, and always feel free to reach out and inquire about presentations crafted just for a special need for your school. Thank you for being here today. And remember, my friend, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for being with us today. 
For information on speaking engagements and resources for your school or family, visit the website key3educators.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.